Welcome to The Rest is History. Hello. I am Frank Skinner and welcome to The Rest is History. I know very little about history, but I am keen to learn. Not in a dry and dusty way, but in a wry and lusty way. So tonight we're going to party like it's 1599. Manning the decks is our historian in residence, Dr Kate Williams. Hello, Frank. So, Dr Kate, who are my fellow ravers tonight? Well, Frank, our two brilliant guests tonight have got comedian Andy Saltzman and writer and presenter Victoria Corin Mitchell. So, can I ask, what would you say are your historic credentials? I've lived through two millennia. That's got to count for something, hasn't it? Mm. Mm. But not all of both of them. But no. I have genuinely none. I've got history GCSE, but it was really in the oh, early yeah. days of GCSE when they hadn't figured it out, and it was all about imagining you're one of the people from history. Do you remember that? So it was all, you're an Elizabethan peasant. Write a letter saying why you wish there was a shopping centre. <laughs> so it's a fairly meaningless qualification. I had to imagine I was Joan of Arc and uh, say how I, which herbs I would use on myself. Cause, um, <laughs> she was French, of course. So, I mean, yeah. it, when they burnt French people, they say, oh, I don't want to be too cruel about it. So they let them season themselves and <laughs> go out the way they would have wanted to go. Let, let us commence. We begin with a round I call What Else, in which we look at people from history who are known for one thing and try to find out their other achievements, if any. This week, Samuel Pepys. Now, what I particularly like about Samuel Pepys is I've got a sort of... It's almost like a nervous tick. If anyone says to me, like, do you know that old joke? Do you know my sister May? No, but thanks for the tip. <laughs> I find I obsessively do that. So if people say, do you know Victoria Wood? No, but thanks for the tip. <laughs> it's constant. And consequently, if they say, do you know Samuel Pepys? No, but thanks for the tip. I'll definitely get changed with a towel around me. <laughs> so, um, so, guys, before we go to Dr Kate and get the facts, do you know anything about Samuel Pepys other than the fact that he wrote a diary? He was a bit of a horn dog, wasn't he? Didn't he have lots of affairs with his... Uh, what did you call him? His... A horn dog? <laughs> I believe it's a 17th century term. Um, oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, didn't he have affairs with his home help or uh, his staff? Also, West Ham fan, apparently. <laughs> West Ham fan. No, I didn't know that. Uh, one thing I know about him is that he buried a cheese. We've all done it. Yeah. <laughs> I could be wrong about this, but I think when the Great Fire of London was on its way, he panicked that it was going to affect this big cheese that he had. And so he... Uh... It wasn't an attempt to stop the fire. No. It was kind of some, some 17th century firefighting technique. Before they had these modern foams that we have, they just used to bury cheese. And hope yeah. So it's some... like sacrificing a goat. Yeah. I'll placate the gods by burying this cheese, yeah. and then the fire won't destroy the city. I, I think he was just protecting his cheese. Right. <laughs> I think this anecdote goes against the theory of him being a big seducer. I'm now just imagining this sort of slightly gluttonous man with his hands smelling of old cheese. You mean sort of mud under his fingernails from saying... where he's put these dairy You're products right. in the garden. You can't imagine Russell Brand burying cheese. <laughs> but just, I, I don't think that's the kind of meal that Russell Brand would have. One <laughs> giant parmesan. <laughs> Good what family. I know about the um, Great Fire of London involves when I went up the monument. You know, there's a thing in London called the monument, which is a monument to the Great Fire of London. And uh, what I know about it is I think about five people died in the Great Fire of London. 
But I, apparently more people died jumping off the monument since it's been built than people who died in the Great Fire of London. <laughs> That's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> and ones that did die were all in cheese burial-related accidents. <laughs> One man died of multiple stab wounds after he fell into a pit of upturned Dairy Lee triangles. <laughs> That suggests that he was planning to stay in the house. Because if he was leaving, wouldn't he just take the cheese with him? I think people rescued more or less everything. The fire was so slow in the Great Fire of London that people had time to get in touch with the removal company. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It was the slowest Great Fire of all time. <laughs> you know, normally you think there's a fire coming head for the hills. You don't think, where's that shovel? I probably bury the Stilton. <laughs> <laughs> bury the Stilton really does sound like a euphemism. <laughs> Going up the monument. <laughs> so, um, Dr. K, can you fill us in on? Uh, am I right about the Great Fire of London? Yes, Samuel Pepys started writing in 1660, and he stopped in 1669. So he wrote about the plague in 1665, wrote about the Great Fire in 1666, and he really did bury his Parmesan cheese. Got it. He did, and he buried it in a deep hole along with some wine. As you say, he got rid of quite a lot of stuff. He'd sent his wife off, he'd sent some of his paintings off. But the cheese he kept as a little snack. And, of course, Parmesan is like gold. I mean, it costs a fortune to have a great big hole Parmesan. He's sitting on an absolute fortune. So he, he buries it in case, you know, people loot his house and go, I don't want gold. I want that cheese. But he won't dig it up till the fire is over. And you presumably know, this is pre-cellophane. Yeah, it's just... You've absolutely <laughs> How old was he when the Great Fire came? 33. What did he do for a living, Samuel Pete? He, well, he worked for the Admiralty, so he was this pretty successful civil servant. So while he's not you know, working out which ship goes where and being super efficient, he comes back and he writes his secrets in his diary about the fact that he keeps fancying the maid servants, as Andy was saying, has a long affair with his wife's companion, and then he has to stop because his eyes aren't up to it. So after that, they say, you've got to dictate to your clerks, and he can't tell them all his secrets about girls and drink. So that's the end of the diary. I mean, I keep a daily journal. I've kept a daily journal for about 15 years, mm. and I do write it with a slight sense that it might become an historical document. <laughs> think from the diary that he knew it would be published one day and people would read it? If I were him and I thought my diaries were to be published in the future, I wouldn't put that I enjoyed myself in church engaging in acts of self-love. <laughs> oh, no. You got any tipex? <laughs> Is there anything else about... Oh, the death toll. The Great Fire of London and the death toll. Yeah. Because, yes, it, the official number is eight. They say it was eight, and that was the official total, but actually there were so many poor people whose lives weren't recorded and they were buried under their houses, so I think it might have been a bit more than eight. There were some estimates of a good couple of thousand, if not more. Somewhere between eight <laughs> and two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> and some of them go up. I've seen ten, twelve, twenty thousand, you know. I've got friends who are like that. You know, when that conversation comes around about how many lovers you've had? <laughs> Somewhere between eight and two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> The next round, I think. There are many courageous figures from history who only had one leg. We pay tribute to these magnificent monopeds in a round we call Pull the Other One. <laughs> now, before we go any further, if I'm not wrong, Josiah Wedgwood, you know, of the pottery... He was a big businessman in the 18th century. So he used to travel around selling pottery. 
and he had something quite minor like gout or something like that but it was he found it to be a complete annoyance as he traveled and he thought it might be affecting business in some way so he had his leg amputated <laughs> just for convenience do you know he also invented the wedgie desire wedgie <laughs> for those who hadn't paid for their pottery it was his way of kind of threatening them to pay up their uh, pottery bills. Well, he knew that they couldn't do a wedgie on him because the gossip would go on. <laughs> There's only one leg. No purchase. Am I right about Josiah Wedgwood? Well, he did have a wooden leg, but it was because he actually was ill. He had a smallpox abscess on his knee, so it was super painful because you wouldn't just have your leg chopped off because you had to have it chopped off without anaesthetic, so pretty much sawed off. Sorry, what dates are we talking about? That he, well, he was 1730, and he got it when he was about 40, so about 1770. You know, you got your smallpox, you itch too much, and it ends up in an abscess, and the end you end up without a leg. It's consequences, isn't it? I really... Scratching. I respect him for it. I mean, it made his life much simpler as a travelling salesman. There was less to pack. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was more off. to pack. Normally, you don't have to pack your own legs <laughs> when travelling. Yeah, but you'd be wearing that. But only one shoe, yeah. one sock. One sock. Yeah. And John Cadbury, the Quaker businessman, he had uh, a chocolate ear. I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, sorry, he was a chocolatier. Right? <laughs> sorry, I, I misread that. Well, that's where you're going. Because obviously that doesn't work unless Josiah Wedgwood had a pottery leg, <laughs> which he presumably didn't. Although well, that would have been have. good for business, wouldn't it? Look how great my pottery is. I could walk on it. <laughs> could have um, classical figures dancing round the leg like he did on his pot. <laughs> that would have been a fabulous... He wouldn't have had to travel with his samples, just r- roll your trouser leg up. <laughs> Any other famous um, monopeds from history? We've got quite a lot of monopeds. There's a good one, this guy. Um, in the Battle of Cerro Gordo in 1847, the Americans overran the Mexicans so quickly that poor old General Santa Ana was forced to leave behind his chicken dinner and both wooden legs. His legs were taken prisoner by the 4th Illinois Infantry. <laughs> they were taken prisoner and taken hostage. They were like, OK, we've lost the guy. I mean, he's pretty much made a run for it without... Made a run for he it. Made a run for it. <laughs> without his legs. Left, he's left his chicken. Yeah, and there's an, another one is Lord Uxbridge, who lost his leg at Waterloo and said to Wellington, by God, sir, I've lost my leg. And Wellington, who's always super cool, says, oh, by God, sir, so you have. And they basically then had to amputate the leg there without anaesthetic. So they just kind of sawed it off. And he said, oh, the knives seem a bit blunt. That was all he said. So they were pretty sanguine in those days. They were tough. <laughs> okay. And the leg, and the guy who was actually, the house where the amputation took place, Monsieur Paris, he kept the leg, burying it in his garden with its own tombstone. And he kept charging visitors to come and see the leg with the tombstone. Said, you know, come and see this great grave. It's like going to see Jimi Hendrix's grave. It's like going to see this leg grave. And then in the 1870... Yeah. Vanessa leg grave. <laughs> <laughs> If she ever loses a leg, that's what they have to call the shrine. Wenceslas, King Wenceslas had one leg as well. Good King Wenceslas. Did he? Yeah. Massive cricket fan. Played cricket with have one you, leg. Have you made Seen this it? up? Might have done. That could be true. I like the idea, though, of burying your own leg. <laughs> if you lost... Well, I mean, you know, some people... At the end of everything, you know, they, they get their whole selves buried. For no. <laughs> yes, but you don't get the chance to speak at that ceremony. <laughs> but if you buried your leg, you could give a lovely speech about how much you'll miss the leg. You remember <laughs> bouncing your children on it when you were... <laughs> you 
You know, because often you, you must have been like, you go to a funeral and someone speaks, often the clergyman, you think they don't really know the person they're speaking about. It's, whereas, you know, say if you were burying the back of your hand, you'd <laughs> be extremely familiar with it. Anyway, this is the voice of Sarah Bernhardt. Is that the first ever shipping forecast? <laughs> <laughs> it sounded a bit like that. You know, that's that thing on a submarine that goes... <laughs> she got that... <laughs> she was a fabulous actress, wasn't she, she was... Kate? And she had one leg. Did she? She did. She did. She was this amazing actress, really got into her roles. But at the age 70, she played Juliet in, from Romeo and Juliet. She was so convincing. Everyone adored her. Can I just stop you there? Yes. I bet it wasn't remotely convincing. Apparently so. You know, the I audience know, said should, they believed you it. You should have seen her long John Silver. <laughs> You're probably right. But no, I bet her 70-year-old performance as Juliet was absolutely just probably terrible. It. Yeah, <laughs> terrible. And so what happened was, she's super successful, tours all over the world, the divine Sarah, everyone loves her. And so she does Tosca in 1905. She's 51. She really gets into it. She's in Rio. And she leaps off the parapet to do the final scene. And she bashes her leg so hard that she gives it this massive injury. But she says, I'm going to keep my leg. I'm not having it cut off. I'm not doing that Josiah Wedgwood thing and having it chopped off. Mm. And it just gets worse and worse. And by 1915, 10 years later, gangrene set in. So the entire leg has to come off. And, you know, there's a lot of these legs that are curiosities. Her leg is such a great thing because she's this marvellous beauty that a showman offered her £10,000 so he could take the leg round in a circus showing it off, going, you know, this is Sarah's leg. And she says no. I'm trying to see that. Yeah. Well, you'd be able to say that you'd seen Sarah Bernhardt, wouldn't you? And you never got to see a woman's leg well, in those times. Presumably at the point when he offered the £10,000, she was alive. So you could just go and see Sarah Bernhardt in a play. Yeah, but, but you know... But she'd have a long skirt on. I bet it's easy to get tickets for the leg. Besides <laughs> <laughs> the leg toured. She was getting a bit older there. But she never Arenas. liked her leg. She, never, she wouldn't play in it. So she got this leg and she just said, oh, I can't bear it. I'm just going to carry on This is playing. the artificial leg. Yeah, she wouldn't wear the wooden leg. She just basically wandered around in a long skirt with one leg. So basically she played Juliet... Many years later, with one leg. Wait a minute, so she's 70 with one leg and playing Juliet. <laughs> I reckon that just wasn't the most touching performance of Romeo and Juliet of all time. But whoever played Romeo in that deserves a lot of credit for staying <laughs> Oh, God bless her, though. What a trooper. What a trooper. Well, look, if you enjoyed this uh, Paul the Other One round, tune in next week for Paul the Other One, What Other One? The Douglas Barter <laughs> story. <laughs> Now, um, when I first saw King Lear, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, with Starring King the Lear. beautiful 83-year-old Sarah Bernard <laughs> no, it, it was it wasn't that production. <laughs> and uh, there's a bit in it where the sort of bad guy, Edmund, has got this note that he's looking at, and then his stepfather, I suppose you'd call him, comes in and says, um, oh, what's that? And he says, oh, nothing. And Gloucester says, um, if it be nothing, I shall not need spectacles. It's quite a good line, I always thought. But I remember thinking, spectacles in the 16th century. That's amazing. It's quite early, doesn't it? Yeah, so when would you say spectacles were invented? Well, I know that the uh, ancient Greeks didn't exactly have spectacles as we know them today, but they did used to use... There's a lot of tortoises in, in Greece. No, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> they used to um, put two little baby tortoises over the eyes of people who had bad eyesight... And they taught them an early version of Morse code. And they would tap on the people's heads, <laughs> telling them what, 
what was in front of them. <laughs> Hence, even today, you have people with tortoiseshell tortoise shell glasses. glasses. Ah. <laughs> well, apparently, Josiah Wedgwood used to wear spectacles, and he found them a bit uncomfortable, so um, he swapped them for a monocle. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he found them uncomfortable, so he chopped his head off. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> because people are very... I'm too vain to wear my glasses. So it would be, it would be hard to date them because, it, I mean, it could be that spectacles were worn by, you know, William the Conqueror and then sort of Jesus, but when they were posing for a tapestry or a, you know, a carving, yeah. they whipped them off, so we don't know. Well, you're, I, I think that's probably true. I don't think you'd wear them in a... So you're saying Jesus wore glasses? But he could have done. Right, because, I mean, he would probably have had shades then, wouldn't he? Because, I mean, a very sunny area <laughs> that he... That he I, I can see, if you, if you talk about figures from history, Cromwell, I can see in shades. Slightly I... menacing, but he wore Puritan shades, which were completely clear. <laughs> but shades, or sunglasses as I like to call them, are <laughs> less complicated than normal glasses. You think they'd come first. That seems fairly simple. That's obvious. The sun's very bright. You want to put something in front of your oh, eyes. They're invented by an ancient Greek inventor called Spectacles, I believe. <laughs> Let's get some information on this. When do we think glasses were invented? So glasses came first. The shades were a bit later. Shades, our first record of shades is in the 12th century in the China. They used to use smoky quartz so they wouldn't get burned by the sun. I thought he was late. a jazz musician, wasn't he? From <laughs> 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 <And> smoky quartz. <laughs> so, although we didn't get shades till the 12th century, actually the prehistoric Inuit, because they got the brightest light you can imagine, so they, what they used to do was they get, get some whalebone and they used to cut slits out of it. So they weren't quite sunglasses, but they were kind of tiny, tiny little bits of vision so their eyes wouldn't get damaged. So, you know, they can see the precursor. We didn't get mass-produced sunglasses till uh, 1929, so we had to wait. Oh. So glasses came first. You know, the first written record we've got is Seneca, the younger. He says, Letters, however small and indistinct, are seen enlarged and more clearly through a globe or a glass filled with water. And then after that, everyone's saying, oh, you know, we can put some glass, we can put some crystal up, and we can actually see better. So, you know, actually people are starting to use them. And the first wearable eyeglasses we've got were invented in the 1280s. People said they were look like lentils, these glasses, the glass discs. So that's why they're called lenses, because it comes from the Latin uh, lentils of glass. They look a bit like, don't you think glasses look a bit like lentils? If they looked like big lentils, then they were sunglasses. Yeah, they were big orange sunglasses. Lens is the Latin word for a lentil, the, the pulse. <laughs> so someone, someone Bluff. Said, someone, said, <laughs> someone said, look, see that disc of glass I'm about to put over my eye? It looks like a lentil. But it doesn't look like a lentil. Well, no, but to be fair, they haven't got glasses on. So they can <laughs> <Yeah. see. laughs> even, in, even in my lifetime, though, I've seen like the development of the spectacle. When I was at, at school, kids used to wear spectacles with a sticking plaster over one lens <laughs> to encourage the other eye to work harder. Can I just ask a politically correct thing? Can you still say lazy eye? <laughs> Is what? that all right? Because you can't, you can't call anyone lazy anymore. Is it, is, do you have to say the unmotivated eye? Who <laughs> is it? Schubert wears them in um, etchings. <laughs> he didn't care, Schubert. He didn't even finish that last symphony. You were right about Schubert. He slept with his glasses on at night just in case he had this brilliant idea for a symphony in the night, so he could jump up and write it down immediately. Yeah, because it takes ages to put your glasses on. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being stunned when I first heard this that Bach had got a stigmatism or a double stigmatism, and he had an operation on his eyes. 
Can you imagine what an eye operation was like? No, and of course he went blind. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> he did, because how, how could you possibly do an eye operation I then? Know. I think King Harold tried one at the Battle of Hastings as well. <laughs> so this had been an 18th century surgeon, so you go to him and say, OK, you know, I'm Bach, I'm this genius, and I think perhaps you could stick your scalpel into my eye. Oh, stop it, it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> Um, I tell you what I've, has, has always struck me as well is it pins nay. Do you know those ones oh, that, that I... clip to the bridge of the nose? Yeah. Were they the original spectacles? And did stems that go behind your ears? Was that a secondary thought? They were obviously thinking we need to clip this onto some sort of <laughs> body part. <laughs> but why didn't they use the fringe more? <laughs> the fringe. Yeah. What did you have the hair? glasses suspended from a long fringe? I mean, the fringe is begging for it. And then you can just flick your head back for reading. <laughs> I've never seen it done. Those spectacles which go over your ears, they were invented around 1727, so we've had those quite a long time too. So it took nice. 400 years from the first pair of glasses to someone thinking, let's find a way of fixing this on tomorrow. <laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with the ear system. That works well. I just find start to hurt after a bit, hurt the back of my ears. You think you wouldn't if they were tied to your fringe? <laughs> <laughs> OK, so what have I learned here? Well, I've learned that the word lens comes from the word lentil, so that when I'm putting my contact lenses tomorrow morning, I'll truly know that I have my finger on the pulse. <laughs> <laughs> now, enormous wars have begun for the most trivial of reasons. We examine these reasons in a round I call This Means War. So can you give us a, a war that started for a stupid reason? Why don't you just give us a synopsis and we see if we can work it out. My first one is in the 14th century and it was called the Bucket War. The Bucket War. <laughs> is that like a bucket list? But, or the wars yeah. you have to fight before you die? <laughs> so the Bucket War was over a bucket. 12 years of fighting over a wooden bucket that was stolen from the main public fountain in Bologna by their enemies from Medina. So they came in and they nicked the bucket. When was this? 1313. Uh, OK. And they said, where's our bucket? That was always going to be an unlucky year, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> bucket stolen, taken back to Medina... And then they, they basically fought over the bucket. 2,000 men were killed on both sides. Oh and the, then there's fighting over the bucket. But the bucket has never been returned. It's still in Medina. It's been displayed for nearly 700 years in the town and in the communal palace because basically they nicked the bucket and they kept the bucket and they never gave it back. So how did the war end if they didn't get their bucket back? <laughs> they gave up. They said that's they gave it. Up. Because basically the Bolognese were a bit outnumbered. So the modernese outnumbered them four to one and they said you know it's a fair cop keep the bucket but you'd think they might like stage a bucket raid but no is that what you think would have been the more logical thing to do uh, when you like, find yourself in a bucket war rather than just going do you know what I don't really care about the bucket <laughs> <laughs> for some reason the bucket it was like Helen of Troy I mean maybe it was a very beautiful wooden bucket <laughs> beautifully the bucket carved. that launched a thousand ships <laughs> It was I a think really it actually washed. <laughs> it was just a beautiful bucket. One thing I've always wondered is the Hundred Years' War. What did they call that for the first ninety-nine? <laughs> <laughs> At what point did they call it the Hundred Years' War? Was it exactly a hundred years? Because I mean, surely then, if they knew it was coming up to the hundred, there would have been, just been an absolute no, frenzy of mayhem oh, in the you last. You think week. they committed early to hundred? <laughs> Let's call it the Hundred yeah. Years' War. We'll just string it out. Yeah. <laughs> 
wasn't the First World War called the First World War in about 1917? They called it the Great War, but it was referred to as the First World War during the First World War. I will stick my neck out and say that's a fact. Mm, okay. Someone's murmuring up there. Does someone know that's true? Yes. I've heard that on a radio show recently. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely could, it could have been this. Did you listen to this last week? <laughs> this hasn't gone out yet, has it? <laughs> Why do wars always get these big grand titles? You know, you never hear about the peace to end all pieces. <laughs> Give us another stupid war, can you? I've got another stupid war after the bucket war. I mean, can I say I think all war is stupid? <laughs> Would you have let the bucket go? Yeah, let them have the bucket. <laughs> what about the pastry war? Well, maybe not the pastry. <laughs> I don't know, what kind of pastry was it? Shoe? It was a patisserie. So, yeah, it was probably a very nice eclair. Okay. Did they declare war? (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about the patisserie war. Is that what it was called, the pastry war? The pastry war, 1838 between France and Mexico. It was a French (laughs) owner, so this French owner had this very flourishing patisserie selling all kinds of eclairs and choux, and he said... The Mexicans have attacked my patisserie. Slight damage. It wasn't like it was burnt down. It was a slight damage. Did he damage. say, the Mexicans have attacked my patisserie and I do not know what to do about it? <laughs> Bravo. So, listen, why do you get applause for that? Whereas the Eclair War just got grown. So, yeah, the, pati- the pastry war was a bit... So we've got the bucket war, the pastry war. Another few, dog tax war. Dog tax. Are they like thumbtacks? But, but you have to push them in with dogs. <laughs> what? Go on, tell us about the dog tax This war. is in New Zealand in 1890s. So the British tried to impose a dog tax on all the Maori dogs in, in the district. And that was a step too far. They said, right, that's it. We've had enough of you British settlers and your dog tax. So there was a war which... And how long was that? Actually, it only lasted one year in 1898. Oldie, but you say only, but uh, that's seven years in... in (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're trying trying to win me back now. (laughs) So people died in the dog tax war. How was it? Was a dog taxed by size or just any dog volume? Was it it a flat rate? A flat rate for a dog. So two shillings and sixpence per dog. That seems unfair. Small to big. And they said, right, that's it. So you British dogs, the British dogs didn't get taxed, but the Maori dogs did, and that's that was not, inequality. That's not fair. I mean, do you remember the pet... I remember they used to have a pet licence, didn't they? You'd have a pet licence to have a dog. Yes, I remember. It's seven and six. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought that could lead to war? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think we have to put a stop to this now. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I brought up bark earlier. <laughs> Anyway, um, time is up and here endeth the lesson. So um, I've learnt that I'm going to actually bury myself in instalments. <laughs> I'm going to be steadily assembled. Is that all people used to do in the olden days, just bury stuff for no yeah, reason? Yeah, but it's such a waste when people just burn legs and stuff like that. Well, you've got to recycle it these days, haven't you? If I lose a leg, I'm going to use it as a draft excluder at home. <laughs> Anyway, thank you to Dr Kate Williams and our guests, Victoria Corran mitchell and Andy Zaltzman. And thank you for listening. And the rest, as they say... The Rest is History was hosted by Frank Skinner with Dr Kate Williams. The guests were Victoria Corran mitchell and Andy Zaltzman. And the producers were Justin Pollard and Dan Schreiber. This was an Avalon production for BBC Radio 4.